2: And I'm Karen Chatton from Gardnerville, Nevada, and you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for September 12th, episode 3,262. Good morning, Horse World.
1: When your start time's on Saturday and your finish time's on Sunday, and it doesn't get much better than best conditioned and completing the challenge is the challenge you're an endurance rider and welcome back Karen Karen stops by the second Tuesday of every month and we chat about all things endurance but fear not if you're not an endurance rider because we chat a lot about a lot about a lot of topics that apply to everybody who loves horses and what we do is we get a couple of guests on from the endurance world and this time out we have a mongol derby finisher uh-huh. and then we are also going to chat a little bit about the youngest female tevis cup champion ever among other things so welcome back to the show karen well good morning jennifer Da-da-da. i have a, I have a lot of exciting news yeah well we always catch up on on your adventures from month to month at this point in the show and invariably there's something crazy going on because endurance riders live crazy lives so what have you got for us
2: Well, I decided I wanted to get a new horse.
1: Wait, 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 wait. Didn't you just get a new horse? (laughs) Two years ago.
2: (laughs) Two years ago I did. Yeah. So yeah, starting over is hard. You know, it's it's rough. So I decided I wanted to get a new one with a clean slate, start over. So I, I sent out some feelers. A couple people I knew, and I got responses back um, on two different prospects, which I was going over. Everybody sent me videos and photos and information, and I just couldn't decide because they both had they both fit into my category of what I was looking for, and it was just a really difficult decision. So then my husband finally says you know what just get them both (laughs) can we clone your husband please (laughs) exactly and it's like well i wasn't gonna blink or uh question that logic at all and next thing i know um i hired a shipper and she picked up both horses the same day and brought them down to me (laughs) so are they both from the same place um, they're they're both from Oregon, but they're from different breeders. But they okay. do have some of the same breeding, which um, the C M um, K, old type of uh, um, foundation breeding that I really like because they have really good brains. And one of the horses actually is from the same breeder that uh, my horse Jovi is from. So. Um, they're kind of almost like clones of each other. The only difference is one only has three white socks instead of four. So my husband can tell them apart.
1: <laughs> well, that's important. Uh, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so now you now the herd consists of one gray and two chestnuts. Exactly. Yeah. One gray and two chestnuts. Now your, your gray that you've had for a couple of years now, Jovi,
2: he's a mature adult. So he's going to be starting to compete soon. Yes, he's. He's the, he's the chestnut, um, and yeah, he's nine now, and he's going really, really great. I took him this last month. I took him to a Nita ride that was a nighttime ride. It started at 7 o'clock at night, and we went out, and we rode in the dark in the desert, and he did really well. So, you know, he's coming along. He's, he's gotten fitter, and um, totally, he's just chill. He's so much fun to ride. I am— in training with the partner right now to do a ride and tie at the end of the month with him. Oh, really? With Jovi? That's interesting. Have you done those before? I haven't ever done a ride and tie. I mean, I've been at events where they had a ride and tie in conjunction with an endurance ride. So I know a little bit about what it what's involved and how it works. Um, And so we've been meeting once a week and practicing and it's, it's kind of fun. You ride up to a tree and you hop off and you tie your horse up and you take off running. (laughs) So well, you know, one guy's fun, right? <laughs> so we're practicing, you know, and I'm not by I'm not a runner by any means, but I I figured I can shuffle along and get it done and it gives me an excuse to go out and do some training and do something new with my horse. And See, and he's doing really well. Really doing he, good. He, I need to is. do I need to do a ride and bike. I could get
1: off the horse and ride a bike. I could do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I wouldn't. Yeah, the ru- the running wouldn't wouldn't work for me. But t- I'm sure somebody somewhere has done one where you you alternate human beings from bicycle to horse to bicycle to horse. I'm and sure someone's done it because they're somebody all could. Swords. Yeah, you
2: could yeah. make it up as you go. You know, yeah. and that um, would actually work well
1: because a bicycle is going to be able to travel similar distances to a horse because if it's um, if it's if it's difficult terrain, it's not uh, paved tracks or right. forestry roads. If it's, if it's proper single track type of trail, a bicycle is going to be able to go probably about the similar speed or maybe a little bit slower than a horse. So you'd be able to, you know, cause some, just, one of the, yeah. one of the challenges is with, um, the ride and ties is the human being goes a lot slower than the horse.
2: <laughs> well, that's just it. You know, the slow part is the getting on and getting off and, you know, trying to become more efficient with that and with tying the horse and and that sort of thing. And so it's been kind of fun practicing because he just sits there and watches us as one of us runs off and leaves him <laughs> really that's interesting it was
1: interesting the other the other day we were leaving the the stable where Nigel and Scooter live and I was talking to the gal who takes care of them the next day and she said when we left they both came over to the fence and watched us leave leave and whinnied at us oh Aww. oh Aww. Aww. they were probably just whinnying to the horses next door but I'm not I'm not gonna know they were winning at me because they missed me oh <laughs> I know. Oh so, gosh. I guess I, know. I guess certain horses would be more suited to ride and tie because they have to watch other horses and people go by and be left behind. Exactly. So inter- so, interesting uh, that Jovi has is looking like he might be suited to that kind of work. We'll see. We're gonna <laughs> we're, gonna, <laughs> find we're out. gonna find out. <laughs> that's really interesting. So how how many days a week do you practice your running and what types of distances do you train at?
2: You know, um, now that I've got the two new younger horses, one is four and one is eight, by the way, I'm spending a lot of time walking them through the neighborhood and walking them out on the trail, exposing them to everything because there's so much stuff going on, Um, you know. It's just so I'm getting miles in every day. You know, I'm probably getting in around 20,000 steps or more every day working with just the new horses. But once a week, I'm meeting up with the new partner that I met, which, of course, you know, it's sort of funny. I was joking with my husband. I'm like, you know, yeah, I met this new person that I've never heard of before. And I'm going out in the middle of the wilderness where there's no cell phone service and meeting her. and letting her just take off riding my horse (laughs) sounds like a plot for a murder mystery to me (laughs) it does I'm like well okay we're you know uh that's the thing you know with horse people she um she's getting back into it she's an experienced ride tire, and you know we're just starting with a nine mile course to see how it goes and and if we do okay um i think it'll be kind of a fun and a little bit different thing to do and it's always good to you know try new stuff with your horse and and teach them new new things you know so yeah. kind of looking forward to it we'll we'll so see how it goes are what is
1: the length of ride and tie what kind of rack well, does
2: that fall in the, there's different distances at this one that we're doing i think Um, there's like a nine mile course and a 22 mile course, and then sometimes they do thirties and even longer than that. But we're going to start with the nine because I figured I can shuffle my way through four or five miles if I do, you know, half of it Mm -hmm. myself on foot. I can do that because like I said, I'm walking the new horses and doing work with them, um, every day and I'm getting in three four and five miles every day doing doing that so um, I can just sort of hustle myself along and shuffle I don't have to actually run because the nice thing with ride and tie is it's very flexible and they let us have plenty of time so we basically have as much time as we need to you know we could actually literally walk it. Um, I see. so that your maximum you time to.
1: allowed is pretty generous, ok,
2: right. yeah. That and so, sense. um, we're you know, I'm just kind of doing it for the experience and for something you know, else to train the horse to be able to do. And, um, and then hopefully I'll also get them to an endurance ride coming up in the next month or so. And I, I know I've got another parade coming up. I'll take them in. And then in the meantime, I'll keep working with the new horses and, and get them started and do a, a bunch of training and stuff with them. So so, what are their names? Oh, okay. Well, the, the four-year-old is named Midnight Cowboy because... He was actually literally born in the middle of the night and he just turned four in June and um, he's a cute little chestnut with three white socks and a blaze. And the other very similar mm -hmm, to
1: Jovi. Yeah,
2: very similar to Jovi and they're built with like little tanks. They're very solid, sturdy horses. Um, They both have like eight inch cannon bones and, you know, pretty ginormous sized feet for their size. Um, he's going to probably mature 14'3 hands or so, maybe a little more. Um, Joby's like 14'2, which is a perfect size. Now, the little gray, he's smaller. He's a little itty-bitty thing, but he's also very sturdy, and he's got nice sized feet, um, and he's put together just beautifully. And he's only 13'2 hands. Wow, that and, is little. And- he is a little teeny thing and he's then just you're a little teeny eight. too. So that works. Right. Exactly. Cause I wasn't really sure about, you know, my size and stuff, but you know, he's put together so well and I see a lot of people, you know, full size adults are riding smaller horses. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm definitely under, you know, maybe 20% of his weight with tack Mm -hmm. you know less than that actually Mm -hmm. so um I it shouldn't be you know asking too much out of him but if I decide that he feels too small for me you know once I get him going he might make a really great horse for a junior rider or another smaller person but
1: guess what because he's so tiny you get to new stuff for him (laughs) (laughs)
2: I'm, there you go. I know it. Right. Right. So, and I'm, you know, kind of partial and and part of why I couldn't make up my mind on which of the two horses and ended up getting both of them is he's got a lot of the same exact breeding that my horse chief had. And so I, I know. Yeah. So uh-huh. there you go. A lot there of the same characteristics and yeah. personality and yeah. the coloring is the same. And uh, yeah, I'm a sucker. And, you know, and like uh, I wasn't going to blink twice when my husband says, well, just get them both. <laughs> <laughs> no, never,
1: never, never look the, the gift horse in the mouth in that case, right? <laughs> exactly. No, <Nope>, never going <gasps> to oh do that. My gosh. Well, this is the part of the show after we catch up on adventures, uh, Karen always has a what we call the endurance tip, although it's just a horsemanship tip from the endurance point of view, each show. And we're going to get right to that after we hear from our sponsor, Spalding Fly Predators.
0: If you have one or two horses, or you have 20, 30 or more fly predators, will make the difference between heavy infested fly problem or a no fly zone. Spalding Lab Fly Predators, catching these flies before they become an issue.
1: Endurance tip, horsemanship tip of the month. What is it going to be and what inspired it?
2: Well, the new horses inspired it because they are getting trained right now to learn how to camp and stay on the horse trailer. So when we start going places, they'll be safe to go out in public and camp on their trailer. And so one of the things I like to train my horses to do is to go in a collar because collars... Um are super convenient for tacking up and untacking. They also allow you to tie your rope a little bit shorter so that it reduces the chance of your horse getting a hind leg. I, I think all horses have to learn at least once by getting a hind leg over a rope if they're tied on a high tie on the trailer and then they learn not to do it again. But if you use a collar because it rotates around their neck, you can tie the rope a few inches shorter and so it reduces the chance of those kinds of things happening. Um, The horses can also lie down and the collars rotate around so that they, you know, they're comfortable uh, lying down and rolling while they're wearing the collar. And it's also more convenient if you're just using the collar around the barn for moving your horses around or bringing them in and out. Like if they're wearing a fly mask, you can just throw. A collar on them and lead them and stuff like that. So I've been practicing those kinds of things with the horses. I started out just using a rope and putting the rope around their neck and leading them and then progressed to using the collar and leading them. The One of the most important things to know if you're going to use a collar is that the horse needs to tie well. You, you, you know, you. If your horse doesn't tie well or it pulls back, you need to go back and work on that kind of training first, and get that all situated before you start trying to use a collar. Because you do not want a horse that's going to pull back in a collar um, and get into a rack or cause a problem or get loose or or whatever. So, um just start out slowly, get the horse familiar with it, used to leading. Um, I lunge mine with it. Of course, I'm still training the new ones how to lunge. And so we're just starting kind of with the basics, but I did spend the first couple of weeks making sure they tied well and that they did not pull back before I progressed to putting them in the collar. So you, you, you mentioned
1: about getting them used to the collar. So, we're going to go under the assumption during this conversation that the horse is halter broke. He leads just fine in halter. So if he's used to leading in a halter and you want to teach him to lead in a neck strap, uh-huh. talk a little bit about the step-by-step process to transition into leading from a neck strap. Let's drill down a little bit on how, what that looks like the first time you try it and maybe the couple weeks later how it looks
2: after that. Exactly. So, you know, you can just start out simply with using your lead rope and putting the lead rope around the neck and holding it and practice leading them that way and letting them kind of get the idea because it is a little bit different. You know, you're no longer, you know, with a halter, you're able to direct their nose and their entire head a little bit differently. So it is something different for the horse to need to learn to give to the pressure with the rope around the neck and then yeah. eventually the collar. And you want to, when you do progress to putting a collar on them, you want to make sure it's snug enough. So there's no way they can, you know, scratch an ear with a hind leg and get their foot through it. You know, you want it to be able to rotate around, but you know, not be too tight, but also not be too low loose that they can get, Uh, a foot caught in it or something like that and then just keep practicing and doing it slowly you know start it you know gradually you know letting the horse get used to the whole idea of leading and stopping and turning you know while using the collar um, I think what might be key
1: here, because Nigel is currently wearing a neck collar. He has a leather one because I'm paranoid, and he wears it 24-7 when there's nobody around. And okay. i make darn sure nothing can go wrong in that respect. If he got his foot in there, the thing's going to break. But um, he's always been handled in a traditional halter. And mm-hmm. if you have a horse that you actually have to use the halter and use pressure, significant pressure... To control your horse with his halter on, transitioning to a neck strap is going to be troublesome and difficult at
2: best. Right. It, and your horse just might not be a candidate for it. Not, right. all, so, of yeah. not all of them are. And something I found are. with with Nigel, because
1: I don't I don't lead him around with it a lot, but I do lead him with it sometimes. Mostly it's there so that in an emergency he can be caught. Uh-huh. Um so I have to make sure that the neck strap is up close to his ears so it can be more effective because my goal is anytime there's pressure on either the halter or the neck strap that I use as little pressure as possible to get the the desired result or something close to the desired result. Because if I use lots of pressure, all, you can only increase it so much, right? So you have to use right. as little as possible to get what you want. And I found that if I let it slide down his neck, I get a very different horse, you know, sure. because he's used to having a, uh-huh. a halter on, which is right up close to his ears. But that's interesting. So maybe to start out, if especially if you've never used a neck collar before, to put two leads on your horse, one on the halter and one on the neck strap. Exactly.
2: Right. So right. that and when he,
1: he feels mm-hmm. that tiny, tiny little bit of pressure to give on the lead rope of the halter, you can lessen that and start to replace it with a little bit of tiny pressure on the next strap. So he understands that, Oh, this is replacing that. And just do plain old simple Uh groundwork exercises. And I did, I learned this the hard way. Don't start by trying to lead them because they have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Start by doing groundwork, exercising them, having them get, give their haunches, give to pressure in exactly right start with that versus starting mm-hmm. with leading and I think you might be find a lot less frustration I'm going to raise my hand and say no, I, I figured that out the hard way so don't you know I'm exactly. just put that out there so you don't have to do my mistake
2: exactly so like yeah if your horse doesn't want to go forward because they don't understand yet you know pull, pull them towards you around in a circle and to you know get front feet moving and just gradually build on it you know just remember there's no hurry there's no time limit if it takes a month it takes a month for your horse to get comfortable with it um you know uh, they do learn the limitations like my two newbies they've already learned on their high ties how far they can go each direction um before they run out of rope and they stop and they give to the pressure and they go back. So, um, you know, if, if you've got a horse that pulls, you know, that's something. That's another whole thing you got to kind of work through. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, you definitely need your horse to be a good tire in, in order to adapt well to using a net collar. But the net collars are very convenient for when you're tacking up and you're untacking and for camping and stuff like that. Because, um, like I mentioned You can keep your rope shorter, so it's a little bit safer and less likely for your horse to get tangled up or caught in something.
1: There you go. Have you guys ever used – oh, I'm trying to remember what they were called. This is something I learned about in in Pony Club 100 million years ago. Uh, Back in the day when tie stalls were common, the horse would be tied to its head – they called them head collars then – their head collar, their halter – and uh-huh. then the rope would run through either a ring or a hole in the frame or the of their their trough in front of them. And at the far end of that rope would be a giant chunk of wood that was very heavy that it would oh. be tied to. So that when the horse was standing at rest next in the front of the stall, that piece of wood would rest on the ground. So there was no tension on the line. But when they moved around... And needed more rope for whatever reason. They wanted to back up. They wanted to turn and look around behind them. They needed to eat off the floor. Oh, okay, they, that's that, an interesting that, thing. That, that piece of wood would get lifted up, but it would keep the tension out of the rope, so they wouldn't wrap their head around it or stick their foot through it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I and I've had I've used that method a couple of times over the years and found it very useful. And we would put about a maybe a four inch chunk of two by, or four by four on there you just drill through through it and stuff the rope through right, and right on it right and i wish i could remember the name of what they called it it was in the old pony club manuals from about 1902 i think and i was wondering for newbies around here explain what a high tie is
2: okay it's a foldable arm that When it's folded up, it's flat against your trailer, and then you can raise it up and turn it out so it sticks out. It's like maybe three feet long. I'm not sure exactly. Um, And then from there, the rope will connect at the top, which I connect mine with Velcro, and then midway down, I've got a quick release. Um, You always want to have at least one or two breakaway points on any kind of – system with your horse. So if they do get tangled up, you can quickly release them, um, you know, fast and easily. And so then uh, the horse, it gives them a little bit more area that they can move around in. And they do learn really well how to move, how to lie down, how to roll, and that sort of thing and reach all their food. Uh, A lot of the horses also learn, um, they'll, you know, pee and poop to one side. And then, um, not all of them sometimes, you know, how they do, uh, they mess up things, but, um, they do learn how to, um, kind of camp. And, you know, and that's all part of an endurance horse's training. They need to be able to learn to tie safely, rather directly to your trailer or through a tie or go in a portable pin, which, you know, a lot of people still use portable pins and stuff. I prefer the high ties just because they're a little bit Uh, faster and easier if you're just one person taking care of the horses by yourself, less set up and less tear down and and that sort of thing. And the horses do just fine. Um, They do learn how to move around and, and that sort of thing. And the nice thing with the collars and the reason I started using the collars is when I was doing the long cross country rides where we were riding for two months all the way across the country um, and it was hot and humid. The halters or you know whatever you were using on your horses would end up just rubbing all their hair off, yeah. Because they're wearing them 24-7 for weeks at a time. So the collars are nice because they rotate around and then the horse gets a break from having to wear the collar all the time. You know, whether it's while you're riding them and they're wearing a bridle or they're confined overnight every night wearing a halter.
3: There
1: you go. Well, we're going to talk a little bit Mm -hmm. more about uh, collars when we chat with Kristen
2: from Distance Dispo. So we're going to give her a call. Okay, so today we're gonna, we've just been talking about net collars, and I understand you also have an, a new product available called a BitQuiet. Tell us about that.
3: Okay, um, the quiets are fairly new. We had quite a few customers asking us for something that would stop the oscillation from the snap that goes directly onto the um, you know, that transfer metal to metal rubbing causes the tuning fork effect, um, which are like small vibrations that, mm-hmm. that are then entered through the bones of the lower jaw, causing irritation and discomfort. So this product is made out of the matte finished beta. It has a small buckle. It's about inches long. And on the end of it, because you're listeners can't see this, it has a little D-ring that you can snap your rain snap onto. So that prevents that rain from sliding up and down on the bit directly. Uh So it's a pretty nifty product. It has five-star reviews. We've even had people call us up and say, I can't believe it. I rode 50 miles and my horse didn't talk to her head once. Everybody should have this. <laughs> Good. So, I, yeah. I remember, I remember years ago, our, our instructors would make us take the rain snaps off when we would have a lesson um, just for that reason. But I know we like the snap for um, endurance riding so we can quickly, you know, take our rain off and tail or whatever, trot our horse out or whatever we need to do.
2: Right, so, right. Yeah. So this helps stop that operation. Um, Okay, so let's also talk about your neck collars. All right.
3: Um, we do have a couple of different kinds. Um, I know, Karen, you use the neck collar with your high tie, and you like a floating ring on there. Which uh-huh. we can add. In fact, we've had so many people ask us for that. It's something we really need to put on there. We have so many options. It, it gets a little confusing. But we do have the neck collars. We have the regular beta biotin. Um, with two o-rings so that you know when you're hooking your horse up it it will slide around and allow him to eat and lay down and so on Um, we also have it with one ring we offer it in the reflect colors too so if you're not familiar with the reflect colors it's a you know shiny biothane color and then it has a strip of the reflect down the center Mm -hmm. and we reinforce the holes on that material because it's a little thinner it's pretty lightweight um, but we reinforce the holes with a piece of beta so the holes are good and strong uh, to hold in your situation um, where you're tying with it. And um, they're just super easy, light. Some people even ride with them. Um, mm-hmm. Great way to catch your horse if you have, <laughs> have one that's hard to <laughs> catch, too. <laughs> we have used it for that uh, as well. Um, so, yeah, they're multi-use and, and lots of di- different options there.
2: Right. And lots of colors. You can get them in any of the colors.
3: Yep. Absolutely. The reflect colors come in, you know, I don't know, seven to 10 different colors. We also have a pretty cool neck collar that is a safety collar. It's a glow collar, so it doesn't have a ring, but in situations of like, um, you know, tornadoes or storms or if you're trying to see your horse at a ride and he's in the pen, um, it just Velcros on, and it's covered. It's a nylon. It's a thick nylon collar that just Velcros on. has a little area where you can write his name on it or phone number, and um, it has the Glowflex overlay that illuminates at night, so if you shine a light on it, you can see him. That Reflect Biothane does the same thing, so it's
4: pretty...
1: Now, pretty I want to men- I want to comment on this, and this is very interesting for someone who isn't necessarily interested in using a, a neck collar for the two use instead of a halter but right lots and lots of people want to have a an effective efficient way to put a label on their horse so to speak
3: yeah yep, yep. Um, and this would and be perfect for yeah
1: go flex safety halter uh 30 bucks comes in uh average horse or, or small horse although yep. I, yep. if they give you a call i'm sure they can get one made Absolutely. in the size they need
3: yep you yeah. can make it in any any size Absolutely. So yeah. it, it doesn't illuminate at night; it glows at night. Is that right? It glows. Yes. It glows. Yep. Okay. For, it does, and it's funny. It, it it's activated by heat and light. Really. So it will stay. Yeah, it will stay glowing when we shut the lights out. Of course, we've had the lights on all day, but we shut the lights out in the store to go home, and we could see the whole glow. Oh my area gosh, that's
2: creepy! <laughs> <laughs> it's too <funny>. creepy. Too <laughs> creepy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, but, yeah, it's a great product for sure. Okay. Kristen, give us your website address and your phone number. Okay. We are
3: www.thedistanedifo.com, and our phone number is toll-free, 866-863-2349. Terrific. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Kristen. Thank Bye-bye.
3: You.
2: Bye-bye. And our first guest this morning is Reed Albano, who just recently did the Mongol Derby. And we're excited to talk to him about that and learn a little bit about Reed's history and his experience uh, learning about the sport of endurance riding. Um, Welcome Reed.
0: Hi there, happy to be here.
2: Well, great. So tell us, give us, first of all, uh, tell us about the Mongol Derby and for the listeners that might not know what it is, Um, Of course, we've talked about it quite a bit over the years, but what is the Mongol Derby?
0: Uh, The Mongol Derby is a hell of an adventure. It is a, well, on paper, it's a thousand kilometer horse race in Mongolia, uh, during which you ride 30-ish, 29 or 30 Mongolian horses, uh, basically going from point to point nonstop uh, for up to 10 days, or at least you have 10 days to finish it. Uh, it's put on by a British company called the equestrianists and, uh, they do another race called the gaucho Derby, but, um, uh, in Patagonia. So that is the sort of, in a nutshell, what the Mongol Derby is. I don't, I don't even know if I would call it an endurance race per se, or at least not in the way that traditionally Americans at least think about mm-hmm. endurance racing, because it's much more about the endurance of the rider than it is about the endurance of the horses. Since each individual horse, you're only going to ride for maybe up to four kilometers, Okay I'm um, all told though when i did the when I did the math, I think I rode just a little bit shy of fourteen hundred kilometers by the time the thing was done, so uh anyway it was it was quite uh, quite an event
2: wow, and so how did you get involved with even learning about this event and then making it a goal to go and achieve uh
0: to be honest with you i I cannot remember when I heard about it it was it was definitely more than 10 years ago. I mean, I think, I think the first running of it was maybe 2008 or 2009 and I definitely heard about it within a couple years of the, of the first running. It Uh might even have been the first, the first one I heard about it. And I'd always thought, Oh man, this looks like really cool event. Um, I've always been very interested in Mongolia, uh, the Mongol horses just from an intellectual standpoint. And, um, and then in so i sort of been on my bucket list to do. And then in, in 2012, uh, I lost my leg in Afghanistan. So I sort of put that aside and was involved with a ton of other things and recuperating. And then last year, I, um, I had just moved to California. The war in Afghanistan had ended, obviously, very unsatisfactorily. Um, I'd been involved in that up to basically the very end. And um, I was sort of trying to decide what to do with myself.
4: Mm-hmm. And I thought,
0: ah, you know, it'd be really cool to do the Mongol Derby before I turned 40. And then I thought, well, actually, there's really going to be nothing that happens in the next five years that's going to make it easier to go to Mongolia for three-ish weeks and uh, and ride a thousand or more kilometers on horseback. So I signed up. To my surprise, uh, I was, after a couple of interviews and some sending of some video of myself riding, uh, I was selected as part of the, uh, the 2023 field. And uh, the rest is history, as they say.
2: Uh-huh. Wow. And. I understand you're the first person that's an amputee that was able to do yeah, the ride.
0: Yeah, I'm first, first amputee, I think, probably first seriously disabled rider, period. Um, but definitely the only amputee who's ever done it. Wow. So,
2: um, well, that, that thank, you, cool. <laughs> thank you for your service. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, much appreciated for what you've done uh, serving. Um, so can you give us a little... Do you mind giving us a little bit of rundown on your history, on your military history?
0: Sure. Yeah. I, um, so I commissioned as an Army infantry officer out of University of California at Berkeley ROTC, which is a pretty unusual path into the military, I can tell you. Um, and so that was back in 2009-10 timeframe. I did sort of the usual track. For a young infantry officer at wartime, uh, I went to infantry school, Ranger School, Airborne, various other military trainings, um, and then went off to the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, where I deployed as a rifle platoon leader to southern Afghanistan. Um, as far as how I wound up being injured uh, over the course of leading an assault on a, uh, a Taliban position, I stepped on an IED, uh, dismounted pressure plate IED, which. Luckily, only partially detonated, severed my right leg, uh, did a ton of other injuries to me, and uh, thanks to some considerable heroics by my uh, NCOs and men, uh, my life was saved. So, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, pretty rough day for me, but you know that was was what it was. And uh, obviously, summer of 2012 was sort of the height of the uh, sort of the surge at the very end of Afghanistan uh, at that period, and so Walter Reed was just. I mean, it was like 40 polytrauma cases a week coming in there that summer. Most of them much more badly injured than I was. I mean, I I was emphasized as a a baloney amputee. That's like a paper cut in terms of uh, the injuries that were coming out of Afghanistan at that period of the war. So Mm -hmm. while while there, I started riding again quite seriously. Um, Honestly, just as much as an excuse to get out of the hospital as much as possible as anything else. Um, So that, I mean, actually as perverse as it sounds, I look back on that little period of my life very fondly. I mean, I was uh, I was collecting a, a, a first lieutenant and then a captain's salary living in DC where my then girlfriend, now wife, was residing. Uh, and my only job was basically to get better. And okay. uh, mm-hmm. that involved, in my case, a lot of physical therapy, a lot of working out, and a lot of riding horses.
2: Now, had um, you ridden horses previously?
0: I had, yeah. my My mother and my grandmother taught me how to ride. I mean, Probably when I was about five or six, and I had I had ridden all through my childhood into my teenage years. Uh, I had very stupidly stopped riding when I was a teenager because, being a typical teenage boy, I didn't want to do anything my mom wanted me to do. Uh, <laughs> so I gave it up. I gave it up for a couple years, but I kind of kept at it very casually uh, when I was in college, and then um, you know when I was in the military, I didn't really have uh, a huge amount of time. Ah, uh, just this, especially the first okay. couple of years of my career.
2: So, what did you do to get yourself ready and to to learn everything you needed to learn in order to be prepared to go do the Mongol
0: Derby? Uh, I did a lot of fox hunting with the Santa Fe Hunt out here in um, in California, which actually was great practice for the Derby because West Coast hunting was very different from anything I'd experienced in the East, and it was it's a it's a lot of. Galloping at extremely high speed over very bad ground,
2: okay, and, uh,
0: and just doing your best to uh, make good calls and and let the horse do what it knows how to do, and so that was a huge help. And then I was very lucky. I just completely out of the blue, cold called. Uh, there's there's been a handful of other American veterans. I mean, like three or four of us who've now done the Derby. One of them, I got his phone number, uh, tracked him down, called him. He was incredibly helpful, and he put me in touch with a gal named Tammy Simpson in Arizona, as well uh-huh. as her friends, Bruce and Dana Weary. And so I did a lot of training with them, um, particularly with Tammy. Uh, she was incredibly gracious. Her husband actually himself was a former paratrooper. Uh, so we, he and I had a lot in common to chit chat about. And, uh, she had a great string of Arabians that, uh, I trained on. I did a number of, uh, endurance races on my goal had been to do a 50 mile, uh, endurance race every month for the six months leading up to the Derby, just with my work schedule and everything else. I wasn't quite able to do that, uh-huh. but I did a bunch of, I did a couple fifties. I did some multi-days, uh, one of the, you know, XP duck rides, you know, which is 155 miles over three days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I felt decently confident, you know, with my saddle time and just, uh, Tammy is an amazing horsewoman and just knows, I mean, if she's forgotten more about horses than I'm likely to ever know. And, uh, just being able to sort of apprentice under her as well as with Bruce and Dana has just, Terrific. Been I've, I've learned a ton. Um, so between those two things and just kind of multi days a week arena lessons just at the, at the place near my house, um, run by Lisa Sabo, which is a primarily an eventing stable, but you know, really for the Derby, you just need to have saddle time.
2: Um, right, right. So, so what was the, some of the most challenging aspects of the Mongol Derby for you?
0: I mean, I cannot overemphasize how much harder it is to do the Mongol Derby as an amputee. I mean, I knew it was going to be hard, but it was, it was really hard. Um, mm-hmm. It would not have, I, you know, from my own standpoint, it would not have been nearly as challenging for me if, uh, if I had both my legs, but um the, the event is just, it's a physical and mental grind. The, you can never relax. I mean, I kept telling people, look, the last horse of the last day could be the one that killed you. I mean, these animals run the gamut from champion Nadam racers to Uh barely broken, uh, mostly wild animals. And I can tell you pretty much none of them Want to have you, a Westerner who doesn't look like a Mongol, smell like a Mongol, walk like a Mongol, or ride like a Mongol on their back? And Uh uh, so we we had a lot of very serious injuries uh, on this race, and uh, you know it's just par for the course. It's it's an inherently dangerous event, and there's a uh, you know a certain amount of just mental and physical toughness and and frankly physical courage uh, required to to ride these horses. Yeah. I won't lie to you. There were two or three of them that I was scared to death to get on. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was, that makes it pretty interesting. Um, honestly, though, there's, there's probably, I would say there's a very high level of just baseline horsemanship. You have to have to even consider doing this thing.
2: Right. But then right.
0: once, once you're, once you're there, I'd say the race is only like 10% horsemanship. And then it's probably 30 to 40% land navigation and route planning.
4: Mm-hmm. And then
0: 50, Fifty-ish percent intangibles of: Do you get sick? Do you get injured? Horse sure. draws, uh-huh. uh, weather, um, just all these different factors that that come into play out there on the step. I mean, there's an infinite number of things that can happen out there over the course of ten days, and right you know, now how you how you react to that is huge.
2: What about the food? How did you adapt to that?
0: I mean, I, I'd spent plenty of time uh, running around various parts of Central Asia um, uh, in a professional context, so I was pretty familiar with uh, with sort of the sheep entrail and dumpling diet. Um, okay. the 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 food varied wildly depending on uh, depending on which family was running which horse station. Some of them, I thought, were amazing cooks. Uh, some of them were a little bit more limited, but it's a, I would say it's a fairly limited array of cuisine that's eaten out there. Um, Uh most, mostly variations on mutton, uh, and, and dumplings. Um, but I was pretty happy with that. I mean, I got very sick from dysentery on day seven. Um, and that really impacted my race substantially. Although I will say I was just about the only person who got that sick and then didn't have to get evacuated. I was lucky. I brought some, uh, a Z pack with me. And took oh, that good. um wow. before before I got really critical. But a- as it was, day seven, eight and going into nine, I was really sick. I mean I, I was running a high fever, a dysentery. It was it was not a great deal of fun.
2: <laughs> so Doesn't sound days. like it. Oh my gosh. You know, so well, much. I can tell
0: you the 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 sheep entrail diet and twelve hours in the saddle a day in a and broiling heat is definitely not what the doctor ordered for for dysentery
2: <laughs> right no kidding gosh so what advice would you have for somebody that might want to go and tackle the mongol derby
0: um i mean you definitely ride a lot of difficult horses um like i said i actually think fox hunting is great training for it um but you have to fox hunt where you know you are riding very aggressively Um because these Mongol horses are just going to gallop over whatever terrain happens to be in front of them. And and you have to be mentally prepared for that. Um, It is a very physically and mentally demanding event. And I mean, for me, I've done plenty of very physically and mentally demanding things. So you really do have to kind of create a a mental architecture for yourself where Mm -hmm. you, you could no more quit than fly to the moon. Because there's there's definitely going to be days out there where you're hurting, where you're going to get thrown, you're going to get kicked, the weather's going to be wretched, you're going to get some very tough horses, uh, and you know that part of that is part of the event. Um, and then I would also say just bone up on your ability to read topographical maps, read terrain, um, and and come up with a decent route based on what you're seeing on a topo map. Um,
2: okay, so so what are the good points? <laughs>
0: I mean, actually, for me, all these are good points. Like, I, I, again, though, <laughs> I, you know, I thought going to ranger school was a good idea when I was 21 years old. So, uh, I mean, you were going to ride some incredible horses. The landscape is amazing, um, truly unlike anywhere else I've ever been. And it, and it defies description in terms of its its awesomeness in the, in the really literal meaning of the word in terms of inspiring awe. The herders mm-hmm. and nomads are incredible. Um, they were just so good to us and they have a real traditional tough culture out on the steppe, which was a real honor to even just for a couple days, be able to sort of interact with and participate with in, um, the camaraderie among the riders is great. Um, I've already been playing polo and hanging out with, uh, with one of the, uh, the women who's, who's local to me here in Southern California, um. It's just an amazing event. I mean, it, an incredibly mm-hmm. positive, life-changing experience for me. And I, and I say that as somebody who's done plenty of very tough, life-changing things. Um, I, honestly, I'd love to go do it again. And I can't believe I'm saying that only a month <laughs> after doing it because I, I, was, I was hurting by the end of yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I
2: bet. Now, have you gotten like interested in the sport of endurance? Do you think that's something you might also continue to do?
0: Uh, you know, I think I will, I have to say, I mean, again, it's, I I wouldn't really compare the Mongol Derby to like an American endurance event. I mean,
3: what,
0: what's involved is very different. I mean, Uh I think, I think actually like endurance, like AERC endurance riding, it's much, there's so much more skill involved in in training your horse in, in having a really deep understanding and, and ability to kind of read the horse. Obviously that's very important in the Mongol Derby too, but really in Mongol Derby, you're just doing like three or four LDs a day back to back, whereas doing a 50 or a 75 or, or God knows like Tevis, there's so many other skills that come into play uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that that um, just are. It, it's just a little bit different. Whereas this event is more like, I don't know, almost riding Tevis every single day for nine or 10 days on a bunch of different horses. Um, So I think I definitely will keep up with some amount of endurance. I think for myself, if I was going to be really serious about endurance, I'd be like the guy who comes out, and does the LD or the 50, uh, you know, on the weekend and then is, you know, back by mid-afternoon enjoying a beer rather than Uh uh, being nearly nearly as hardcore as Tammy or or Dana or Bruce Weary uh, going out there and doing five days and stuff like that. Although I did just uh, apply to race in the Gaucho Derby for 2025. So we'll see. I'm definitely okay. going to do some more, some more endurance to train for that.
2: <laughs> oh, good. Well, we wish you luck on that. Maybe we can catch back up and and hear all about that adventure when the time comes.
0: It looks pretty cool, uh, I have to say. Definitely a little bit different it does. than the Mongol Derby. But.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Reed, thank you for joining us and congratulations on your finish.
0: Um, oh, such it's, a pleasure. And um, t- look, I'd t- be happy to be a resource for anybody who's interested in doing this event. I was lucky okay. a lot of people helped me and took care of me and uh, would be delighted to make myself useful to somebody else who wants to do it.
2: Okay. Terrific. Well, thank you. Thank you. Some people don't think horses and people communicate. We
4: call those people not horse people. Not horse people don't know you and your horse share a unique bond or that your horse knows you know they like your dogs, but not so much the barking. At Sentinel Horse Nutrition, we don't knock not horse people. We're too busy focusing on horse people's horses. With extruded nugget feeds for exceptional nutrition and formulas for every need, our wide choice of feeds makes it easy to find the fit for your horse's health. Find theirs
2: at FeedSentinel.com. And our next guest this morning is Kelly Williams-Stamen. She is an AERC board member and the current vice president. She's also a writer herself and she's joining us today. We're gonna talk a little bit about the benefits of AERC membership and some of the um, benefits of uh, an education that's available to the members. So welcome Kelly, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing excellent, and I'm very happy to be here. Good. I know we've been tossing around some ideas on, you know, ways we can draw more people into the sport and get them addicted and and wanting to ride long distance. So let's um, go through, what are some of the benefits of AERC membership?
4: Well, to start with, we do have an experience extensive record-keeping program, which tracks, of course, all of our mileage. Um, We also offer year-end regional awards and national awards. So I think that one of the biggest benefits of AERC is being able to have those um, items available to us.
2: Okay, so I know there's a YouTube channel, and if somebody wanted to see some of the web webinars, and I know you've got there's some new ones coming up. I've seen posted with Dr. Garlinghouse. Um, how would somebody go about finding that?
4: So right now, I would say the best thing to do is is you actually go onto our website. We have an educational um, section. On the website, okay. Once you become a member, you will be able to access
2: those uh, those webinars. I know she covers yeah. quite a wide range of topics there, and you know I think um, the sport of endurance has really advanced horse welfare and. You know, we've learned so much over the last few decades on how to manage and take care of our horses that I think, uh, you know, a lot of the rest of the horse world has benefited from what we've learned, you know, taking care of our horses on these long distance events.
4: I agree. I mean, there is no other equestrian sport that has the rider working so closely with veterinarians that have veterinarians, um, checking the horses so often. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, gosh, on, on a standard 100 mile ride, you might see a vet five times that day. Um, Mm -hmm. and that, I think that that's pretty unheard,
2: unheard of for many equestrian sports. Exactly. Exactly. And so one of the topics that the people have been discussing is whether or not AERC wants to go into the direction of sanctioning a standalone shorter distance rides that are under 50 miles long. So let's go over a little bit uh, of the pros and cons with that topic without getting too into the politics. <laughs>
4: Definitely. Well, you know, I think that it is very easy to look. Every region has certain challenges that they face, whether that is a lack of public lands to be able to hold a, um, you know, a longer ride on or to be able to hold um events with overnight camping. Um, some regions uh, have an issue with diff- weather during different times of the year. So they might have periods of extreme rain, which would cause the trails to not be rideable, or they m- might have periods of extreme heat and humidity, which would you know create an issue where the heat index is so high that we cannot safely compete, um, at the level that we're asking our horses to compete at, um, Mm -hmm. some areas during the summer, you know, the Southwest region, there are certain areas that due to the extreme heat, it wouldn't be safe for horses. So I think that every region is going to have challenges. Um, and the, the difficult thing about, you know, some of the the rules and the guidelines is that not every region has those same challenges. So how do we develop um, a way forward uh, for our sport where we can attract new members um, and get them excited about the sport because I think that that's that's one of the biggest things that I see because um, I am always. On the on the social media sites and reading the feedback that we're getting, not only from our our current members, but prospective members, and mm-hmm. trying to understand what is it that's holding people back, um, what is it that is keeping people from being able to jump in, um, you know, with both both feet. Um, what is it that they are facing, which is keeping them from maybe being able to move up in distance or um, compete more regularly. Um, a lot of the feedback that we're getting is either there's not rides that are close enough to me, um, or maybe our local trail systems can't support doing a longer distance ride without, you know, maybe doing the same trail four times. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have any local uh, trailheads that would allow us to camp overnight. Um, you know and some of the some of the areas are facing issues with you know maybe in the past they allowed an event to happen and the ride management for that event did not proper or follow all proper guidelines to make sure that um, you know insurance was properly covered or that, damage to the trail system was minimal, or maybe they didn't have good interactions with other trail users. Mm -hmm. And so now we are ride managers or prospective ride managers when they're trying to, um, you know, start new rides in these areas. They're facing a lot of challenges and the thought process behind allowing the standalone LDs is that maybe if we could show them like, hey, we're only going to use this space for, you know, X number of hours on this day, maybe we can get our foot in the door and we can show those uh, land managers that, you know, we will be good stewards of the trail system and we will clean up after ourselves and we will make sure that we're having positive interactions with those other trail users. Mm -hmm. Um, and the thought is, is that if we could do that, and if we could get more people who are local to those areas, because it's, it's really hard to say, hey, I know nothing about this sport. I've never done it before. And I'm going to go drive four hours to go do, you know, a limited distance ride at this place where I know nobody and I have no idea what the trail system is like. Um, and then I'm going to drive four hours home and that is a challenge. And it, it's, uh, not a normal challenge for me being in the West region with so many rides within a couple hours drive for me. That's not a, a challenge that I was necessarily aware of. Um, but there's many places in, right, right. um, mm-hmm. you know, a, across the, the U S and Canada, because we are in both U S and, and Canada. Um, But there's many places where that is a real challenge that they're facing. So the thought is that if we can attract more of those local riders and if we can get some of these local land managers um, and private landowners on board and we can show them on a smaller scale that this could be successful, the thought process is that then we can uh, you know, get some excitement going. We can bring in new ride managers so they don't feel quite so overwhelmed. And then we can hopefully begin to grow the sport in those areas where it has dropped off.
2: Right, right. De- you know, and there's so many outside forces now that are contributing, you know, the economy. My friends are telling me their diesel's costing them $6 a gallon in California. Um it- You know, there's a shortage of veterinarians, so it's more challenging to get your health paperwork. And so there's all these things that contribute that are making things just a little bit more complicated and difficult than they used to be for us. When we started back in the sport, you know, a decade or two or three ago, wouldn't you agree? I
4: do. I mean, like last weekend, I actually came up to Virginia City to uh, pre-ride some of the trail for the Virginia City One Hundred that's coming up this weekend, and I got to the gas station and it was six twenty-five a gallon for diesel. Ooh,
2: uh-huh, and, ouch!
4: Yeah, and I can totally understand, you know, the the cost of owning horses mm-hmm. is growing exponentially. Um, the cost of hay in the last several years has, you know, blown up, um, veterinary costs, you know, and, and we look at it, even things like fuel costs for our veterinarians, that's going to cause all of our horse owning costs to go up. So when we're looking at, you know, how do I get into the sport and enjoy it, but I also have these financial constraints, um, you know, I, I think that the the um, way that we have to look at it is so much different than, you know, how things used to be. Right, and right. I growing up in this sport, my um, my childhood writing instructor, um, and I, I started from the very beginning at seven years old, I started writing, Tevis horses um all of the lesson horses uh as a kid had all done Tevis um you know several of them had thousands of AERC miles that's what we did we did endurance and it was you know your ride of pas- passage when you got to go to the first en- endurance ride with all of the kids at the barn and you know it was always impressed to us um you know of of the 100-mile distance being the Holy Grail and, um, you know, utilizing the shorter rides to, you know, to get educate there, our right, horses. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. train our horses and then build them up the levels. Um, yeah. But it is it is very, keeping in mind kind of that idea, it is very difficult to um, get people excited about the sport and really get them into it if it's not very available and if it's not in front of them, um, Mm -hmm. all the time. Um, so, you know, we have some really amazing people on the AERC board of directors, um, that, you know, from many different backgrounds, um, who, who are working on being able to figure out what is keeping people from, either moving up in distance or getting to a ride um, right off the bat. And then we also have to, I think, be aware that, you know, sometimes people do just want to ride LDs or they do just want to be a 50-mile rider. Um, and how do we tailor the sport so that all of us, and that's, I think, the greatest thing about um, AERC is the Big Tent concept, where riders from all backgrounds and all aspirations can come together um, and compete under one sport, um, however they, ch- you know, choose to. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. that, I think that recognizing that and remembering that, that we are all in it for the love of the horse. Um, and we all just like, to, at the end of the day, we all just like to ride
2: our horse too far. <laughs> exactly. So. I know when I started... I learned about Tavis. I ended up camping at Roby Park. And I decided I, you know, right then and there, I was camped with a bunch of endurance riders. And I decided I just wanted to do that ride. I didn't even know about AERC yet. So, um, you know, it's sort of an infectious thing. You, you get around some of these other people and they get you really hooked on it. You know, it's, um, it, it's definitely an addicting sport.
0: It is.
4: And I remember, you know, as, as a kid growing up, horse crazy kid, and my instructor and uh, childhood riding instructor, she had 10 Tevis buckles, three of them being uh, top 10 finishes. And wow. You know, sometimes we would all sit around, you know, she would let us hang out at the barn all summer long. The rules were we just had to feed the horses at 8 a.m. and we had to feed them at 4 p.m. And as long as that happened, then we could be there as much as we wanted. And sometimes, you know, after we got all the chores done around the barn, we would sit around and she would tell us stories about, you know, galloping across No Hands Bridge in the Uh moonlight, you know, neck and neck Mm -hmm. with another horse as they came in, you know, into the finish line at Tevis. And, you know, crazy me at seven years old, all I could think is, I can't wait to do that. That sounds (laughs) so much fun.
2: (laughs) I know. Uh, I know. Yes. Same here. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
4: and I think that, you know, having the... Um, you know, good fortune to be from the West Coast and from Auburn, where this sport was born. Um, I have grown up, you know, knowing so many of the you know founding members of AERC, and um, you know, just hearing their stories. And and although I'm you know much younger than many of them, hearing all about the birth of the sport. And it's so magical, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's one of those things I think you you can't help but fall in love with a sport where we are so deeply connected to our horses. Um, it's a true partnership. You know, sometimes you get in a pickle out on the trail and and you want to be able to say to your horse, you know what, I I trust you. Get a you know. Uh-huh. Let's get us out of this mess. Um, yeah, the endurance is really unique
1: that way. In that it the the stakes the the barrier to entry I think is smallest of any sport, but the relationship created and, re, and required to be truly successful is unique amongst all other disciplines. I think it's very unique that way. And it's been it's it's really been fun to to hear your point of view and and a little get a little bit of the global view of what AERC is trying to accomplish and for people who want to learn more about what is going on at the AERC or to look into becoming a member, what's the website address?
4: So it is actually aerc.org.
1: There we go. Well, thanks a lot for coming by. It's been interesting.
2: Yeah, thanks, Kelly, and good luck of Virginia City to you and all the juniors riding. Oh, my gosh, I am so excited.
4: I think we (laughs) have about nine or ten um, juniors who are um, going to Virginia City this year from the stable where my horses are boarded. That's Um, so
2: awesome.
4: Yeah, several of them actually, I I think three of them actually completed Tevis this year. So it's going to be a really fun day.
2: Our next guest this morning is Sonoma Blakely. Sonoma has, she is the youngest woman to ever win the Tavis Cup. And she just recently published a book called Chasing Dreams, the true story of the youngest female Tavis Cup champion. Good morning, Sonoma. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So um, let me just say congratulations on um, your Tevis Cup win, and I know your entire family has a history with the Tevis Cup, um, so kind of give us a rundown on, on that. What are your family's accomplishments?
5: Um, so my parents, they did their first Tevis Cup in 2007, and so I was six at that time, and then when my brother, he's two years older than me, when he was 12, he did his first Tevis Cup. And at 15, he became the youngest person to win the Hagen Cup. And so that was kind of a cool story because he was 15 and his horse was actually older than him at 17. And so that was in 2014, when he won the Hagen Cup. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, my family and I have just always loved competing at Tavis. There's something so special about that race. And so then in 2019, um, I won it on my dad's horse, Goober. And I was the youngest woman to win it. And then 2022, so last year, my mom won it. So that was <laughs> pretty
2: cool. <laughs> it is. I know. And we have had your mother and your brother on as guests. So now it's your turn. <laughs> yeah, I'm so honored. So uh, tell us about your book. So
5: it came out last July. Well, I guess like a month and a half ago. End of July and it's been it's been a process to write it. it took me about 3 years to to write it and get it ready and finally get it published. So that's pretty exciting to have my my first published book. And so it kind of just covers the story of me, you know, wanting to compete at tevis and dreaming having these big dreams of someday riding tevis someday racing at tevis being competitive and then the horse that i won on goober he's got quite a story he's got a lot of background history into him just he was so yeah yeah tell us how did he get his name goober So you know it's kind of embarrassing because we've tried to rename him so often, but he just lives up to his name so much (laughs) that you know whatever we named him, it always just turned into Goober, get out of there! You know, Goober, stop doing that. And so he's he's a character, and he loves to. He's he's really smart, and so whatever we're doing, you know, you always have to think ahead of him because he's he uses his brain and he's a thinker, so he'll be a Opening gates, and if you don't latch them perfectly tight, you'll figure (laughs) out a way to unlatch them.
2: Who (laughs) knows? Yeah, so he's a character. Okay, and I understand you got him off of Craigslist for free. We did. So when he was
5: like coming to, he had OCD in his back stifles. Well, I guess stifles are in the back, but um, yeah, he had OCD (laughs) in his stifles, and and then his owner was moving across the country. And the vet's prognosis was not very positive for him. And so she didn't really want to invest in hauling him across the country. And so she gave him away. And so and you we got picked him, him
2: up. And, yeah. Okay. Like, you know what? The rest we'll is history. Well, how old were you when you won the Tavis? I was 18 okay wow that must have been pretty exciting tell us about that finish because i remember that finish with you and uh jeremy yeah it was it was insane um you know i think i was definitely the underdog at
5: 18 and i'd never even top 10 tevis before then so racing against jeremy who had won it three times you know everybody knows jeremy reynolds and so it was an exciting finish so, the last, oh, after Francisco's, we were riding together. So, 15 miles from the finish, and then leaving Quarry, I'd left ahead, and within a couple miles, he caught me. So, then those last four miles, we were leapfrogging back and forth. And then coming up to the fairgrounds, up to the finish, I was ahead. And it was basically like, come on, Goober, we got this. And we were just sprinting <laughs> in for the finish. So it was, I, I don't know, I think it was one of the closest like racing finishes in history, but that's unconfirmed. So,
2: uh huh, right, right. Yeah. I've seen the pictures too of, of you two racing in. And I bet, you know, that was just, I'm sure, so exhilarating for you and your whole family. I mean, wow. <laughs>
5: Yeah, it was a super exciting race, and I was just so proud of Goober, because you could just feel him, you know, he was just giving me everything, so that was really cool.
2: Uh Uh-huh, so if somebody was interested in getting your book, where's the best place for them to go to find it? Um, Barnes & Nobles carries
5: it, Amazon has it as well, or if somebody wants a signed copy, they're welcome to reach out to me, and I'd be happy to mail out signed copies.
2: Okay, yeah. Yes. Well, well, thank you for joining us and telling us about your book. We appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was great
1: talking to you guys. Well, that was a jam packed show today. My gosh, we went all over the map.
2: We sure did. <laughs> Speaking Got of, all over, of map, yeah, all over the map, talking all over the
1: map, um, what map should people use to find AERC rides? Go to AERC.org. There we go. And if you have questions for Karen about, um, how to become an endurance rider, training an endurance horse, how the sport works. We would love to hear your questions. So send them to jennifer at network.com and we'll pose them to Karen on the show and find out what you specifically want to know. But uh, until next month, we'll see you, and we will be back again with more horses in the morning tomorrow.